I would like to state for the record that this country was founded by basically raving maniacs with bad hair. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and you're listening to the ER. Today I'm joined in Washington by FP contributor Rosa Brooks, senior Future of Work fellow at New America Foundation and a professor at Georgetown University. Also here with us is Ed Luce, the Financial Times chief U.S. commentator and columnist based in Washington, D.C., and calling into the studio from Oslo, Norway, where she is undoubtedly there to pick up her Nobel Peace Prize, is FP columnist Corey Shockey, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, where she focuses on military history. Recently, in our tiny podcast studio high above Washington's DuPont Circle, and no doubt from some whaling vessel off the coast of Norway, we had the following conversation. Corey, have you really won the Nobel Peace Prize? <laughs> well, I am delighted that I have your vote, David. I feel like that's going to put me over the top. It was touch and go, but I feel like now I'm really solid on my Nobel Peace Prize. And after all, if they can give one to President Obama before he was even president, I don't see why they can't give it to me. That's too easy. It was I just was leaving it hanging there. Okay, well let me turn the tide. Let's 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 get serious here. Let's focus on a subject we never focus on here on the ER. Me. <laughs> Well, let's just talk a second about my latest column, which by the time this comes out won't be so recent, in which I tried to enumerate the nature of the threat posed by Donald Trump, why it was special, why it is faux objectivity to treat him like a legitimate candidate, why if you are truly being objective and someone is a racist, you must call them a racist. If they're a misogynist, you must call them a misogynist. If they're incompetent to the job they aspire to, you must say they are incompetent to the job they aspire to. And thus, the only objective way to report on Donald Trump is to refer to him as a racist, misogynist, incompetent. I also said in this column that the only legitimate act that one can take if one feels it is inappropriate to have a racist, misogynist, incompetent as president of the United States, is to vote for the only person who has a chance of beating him. But that fortunately, that person, Hillary Clinton, is extremely well qualified to be president, would actively be probably, you know, from a handful of people you might pick as the most qualified to be president, has a great temperament for the presidency, and at the same time as a kind of bonus, would be righting a wrong of 240 years by finally having somebody representing America's majority population in the White House. That was it in a nutshell. (laughs) David, that was very moving. Thank you. I then was shocked to see a tweet on the Intersphere from Corey Shockey, Who knew that they even had the internet in Norway? And Corey Shockey said, first of all, she was surprised that I was earnest, which I don't even know what that means because I'm earnest. And she then said she agreed with me. And then I thought, isn't this ironic? Here is Corey Shockey, professional right-wing maniac, endorsing (laughs) Hillary Clinton. Did I get that right? (laughs) Which part? 
So let me say I am less persuaded of her many virtues than you are, but I am certainly persuaded of your argument that unless people who believe Donald Trump would be a danger to our country vote for Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump will be the president of the United States. And so I am resigned to voting for Hillary Clinton because I think Donald Trump is a genuine danger to the country. Let me ask you another question. Do you have other friends who are Republicans? <laughs> One or two. Some David. of my best friends are Republicans. Okay. Well, I wouldn't. You don't have to admit that in public here. <laughs> well, I guess to make Corey feel better. It's just you know they're just a handful of us listening to this anyway. And and Rosa, by the way, is taking her sneakers I'm, I'm off just, in the I'm studio. I'm sitting here wearing pajamas, guys, pretty yeah, much. It's um, really... But there is a good reason for that. But I, I won't tell you about it. But yes, I am now taking my shoes off and. Going to put my foot up and generally make myself at home here in our studio. Think of all of our listeners sitting in their cars, envisioning this, envisioning the carefree family atmosphere we have here at America's Favorite Podcast. But let's get back to this, Corey. You have Republican friends. What percentage of them do you think will vote for Hillary Clinton? Ah, you know, I think we are still so early in the process, it's hard to affix a number. But I am not surprised uh, by a lot of the lighthouse Republicans, Max Boot, P.J. O'Rourke, people who are opinion shapers on the right, arguing both that Donald Trump's policies are reckless endangerment of our country and of the international order more broadly, but also that the coarsening of our political discourse, the degradation of our fellow Americans and the people who are our friends in the world is just beyond the pale. So, Rosa, what did that just mean? Well, I'm trying to raise the tone of our political discourse by doing this podcast in my pajamas with my shoes off. But um, I think what Ed, that means— Ed, Ed is like, I, I what, is Ed, Ed is thinking, what am I doing here? Gear. Obviously, the listener won't know that, but I have my bow tie and, on. Yeah, Ed is and actually wearing a top jacket. hat and tails. Yes, indeed. all English yeah. people it all, do they all cancel the time. Each other for, the, for the radio in particular. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I think what it means, David, is that is that Trump is very, very scary, and he's very, very scary even to most Republicans, um, uh, or at least most sane Republicans. Um you know, it happens every now and then. Every now and then we have to switch parties under intense pressure. I, I voted for a Republican once, I will have you know. Uh, and I can't even remember the year, but it was it was in Massachusetts when John Silber was running as the Democrat for governor of Massachusetts. And he was nuts. He was insane. And he was far to the right of the Republican candidate for governor. And I, and I closed my eyes and I gritted my teeth and I voted for the Republican because he was a great deal less crazy and dangerous than the Democratic candidate. And I think that's what we see here. And I think that's right. I think, I think it, is, it is good and right that people should be focused less on the label attached to the person, particularly as we've seen in this, this particular primary season. You know, there are all kinds of ways in which the primaries are just set up in a crazy way, you know, and it turns out they're set up in a way that turns out to be very surprising to many voters when they discover that the rules for who ends up being the candidate are not particularly logical or particularly fair. And if it turns out that Donald Trump wins the Republican nomination, as he is at this point 99.9999% likely to do, the fact that he has Republican under his name should not obligate anybody to vote for him if he's nuts, well, as he is. First of all, I would like to join you in coming out here letting you know that the first person I ever voted for was a Republican, John Anderson, in I his John Anderson. failed candidacy for the White House, uh, because I have a 
real weakness for chaotic centrist candidates. And I will later discuss with you my vigorous support for Paul Tsongas and Evan Bai. But Ed, you have the benefit of viewing all of this at a slight remove, even though you live here and among us and speak our language to some degree, um, that, that, you know, that, that you come from a, a different kind of political culture. And yet, in your own political culture in the United Kingdom, you have a complete fucking maniac also, Boris Johnson, who's out there banging his head against the wall and saying ridiculous stuff. You have another maniac or not a maniac, but kind of a loose cannon leading one of your two major parties right now who, you know, would seem to me inelectable in, in, in most periods of even what passes for sanity in the United Kingdom. So, so perhaps you can provide us with a perspective on the Trump phenomenon from your sceptered aisle seat. Uh, well, thank you for asking me about Boris. Actually, unlike Trump, I've known Boris personally for a quarter of a century now. Um, <laughs> so I, I sort of have insights into Boris, but sort of some hesitation at being anything that you could share that to, no one knows. That, that you know. no, I mean, I can I can tell you that he's a rank opportunist of is the it, shallowest. Is it possible <laughs> that he and Trump are related? They do look a little bit alike. They're, they've got a hair problem. Yes, they have a hair problem. I mean, the, the hair's different color, but there's a there's a waywardness there that that is. Donald Trump's hair. Donald Trump's hair is a different color from Donald Trump's hair. That's true. So that I mean, that's you know, kind of weird and that's and, very true and metaphysically challenging. <laughs> but keep going. But but here here you know, as on language, we are divided by a common hair. I suppose. Oh, I'm sorry, I couldn't resist that one. Oh, look, well look, there is um, Rosa gonna, sitting gonna, there I'm thinking. I'm not going to chase that hair. No, she was, no, no don't she chase that. Chase the hair, and she's certainly not going to get into the hair to the throne. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have to admit culpability. I started this. Um, look, there's something happening in common um, in Britain, the United States, and across most of the Western democratic world, and that is people are pissed off, very, very pissed off, and that they're looking for the most efficient um, Hail Mary to try and solve the complicated, uh, in many cases, insoluble um, sort of concatenation of problems is that it, they face. Is it face. a Hail Mary or is it just a great big nihilistic fuck you? I think it's both. Um, you know, the, the, there are hopeful sides of this backlash and there are nihilistic sides of this backlash. But, uh, you know, in America's case, it's build a wall, you know, get the most obnoxious outsider in the White House that you can think of. And in Britain's case, it's just blame everything on Europe and everything will be fine the day after we vote on June the 23rd to, to Brexit. And so in that respect, these problems are actually very similar. They have a lot in common. Um, what Boris has in common with Trump, and it's very intriguing because he does use a lot of the same tropes, is a complete understanding that facts don't matter. It's mood, it's sentiment that, that, that gets people. Because if he was basing his case just like Trump, on an empirical, carefully marshaled series of arguments, he would lose. What he's going for is the low-information, pissed-off voter, and he's doing it with the same degree of um, shallow opportunism and, you know, disturbing um, lack of any moral compass that we're seeing with Donald Trump. I, I hope both fail. Um, I hope to the bottom of my heart both fail. And if Hillary Clinton wasn't running and it was a, a kitchen mop, 
um, standing against Donald Trump. I'd urge people to vote for the kitchen mop. And the same in Britain against Boris Johnson. If being a deranged, narcissistic, opportunist with bad hair who's never had a rational thought were qualification to lead office, why has Ozzy Osbourne never been the head of one or the other of our countries? To popular culture questions, I will direct to Rosa. <laughs> I can't answer that question, David, although I would like to state for the record that this country was founded by basically raving maniacs with bad hair. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I mean, let's face so it. So you've seen Hamilton. Bad hair. <laughs> you go, from let's France, go back a little like bit further. Let's hair. go back even further. No, I mean, I mean, I mean, David. The one, the, the one area where I would quarrel ever so slightly with with your sentiment, your article, is you argue that Trump is clearly the the worst qualified person to run for president in American history. I'm, I'm not, I'm not familiar with all the failed American presidential candidates throughout history. My guess is that that's not the case, though. I mean, we, we we've had some. We've had some epic nutcases in this country play important roles we'll in American throw, politics. Let's, let's discuss that And I was going to start with the Pilgrim Fathers. I was, let's just start right at the beginning. Okay, they were British they were subjects. crazy. But they, they were, were British subjects. They were crazy. They, let, they were essentially a cult. They led a bunch of people on an on a ocean voyage, which a year within a year of landing, they'd killed off half of them. You know, it was crazy. And I think that suggesting that craziness, self-destructive forms of craziness is something new in American politics, I think that's a mistake. I think we've, we've always been subject to bouts of self-destructive craziness. Okay, yeah, And sometimes no, no. it works out, you know, and sometimes a few centuries later, we forgive those little minor peccadillos like accidentally, you know, killing, killing off three quarters of the Native Americans. So we say, oh, well, you know, shit happens. But, but let's face it. This is not new. Look, the pilgrims are crazy. The Salem witch trials were crazy. We're still back before there actually was something called American politics. That was just British craziness, okay? <laughs> All right. Okay. English. English. And it's your English. fault. English. We, we then, you know, go into American political history. And there have been a lot of things that have happened in American political history that were both crazy and appalling. Mm-hmm. And maybe even more crazy and appalling than anything that Trump would be capable of doing. Slavery and genocide come to mind. Personally, I'm not highly sympathetic to the use of nuclear weapons on civilians. So, I mean, these things happen in our history, but certainly slavery and genocide come to mind. But having said that, in the history of the U.S. presidency, can we think of any candidate who had no political experience, no foreign policy experience, his business track record was one of failure, choosing degrading businesses and hanging out with mobsters. Andrew Jackson. Who, and Andrew Jackson was a military leader, which is, I, last I checked, part of the government. He had a political past. He actually took a path to the presidency that has been followed several times in our history and seen as providing a degree of qualification. Was he batshit crazy, vile human being? Quite possibly. But I don't know if he was as unqualified for the presidency as uh, as Trump. But it's a good choice. It's a good choice. And, and Corey, I knew that we would get to your sweet spot, which, by the way, is an academically brilliant sweet spot to have, which is the middle of the 19th century, which to all Americans is a comp- – you could say there was – a president named Festus Greenblatt. And people would go, oh, I didn't know that. Andrew 
Jackson conducted a unilateral military attack on Spanish Florida without any communication with his government when he did it. He betrayed the Indian allies who made him a successful military commander in the War of 1812. He disestablished the Second Bank of New York, which served as our Federal Reserve at the time, plunging the American economy into 15 years of depressive economic cycles. He was not only a slave owner, he was a slave trader. He depopulated the Indians the five good tribes to Oklahoma on the Trail of Tears. Like he said at the end of his presidency, he was asked if he had any regrets. And he said, I regret that I did not shoot John Calhoun or hang Henry Clay. Well, well shooting John Calhoun. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, th I think we yeah, could get all, three out of four of us at least to support having shot John <laughs> Calhoun. But, 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 but leaving that aside for a second, he was a bad general. Uh, he was a bad man. By the way, though, in terms of his military behavior back in those days, because of the nature of communication, most senior level military officers were essentially given the direction to act in the interests of their country and and not to follow close chain of command like we have today. But I think I think okay, I think we're we're going down a rabbit hole here. No, I not just, that this is not a good rabbit hole and an enjoyable teacher, rabbit hole to well, go first down. Of all, there's seven people listening to this <laughs> podcast. And they like rabbits. They, they, too. they like rabbits and eight of you know and six of them are are drunk on cheap box wine. But but I don't I think, but I think you I think you're, you're making your work a little harder <laughs> Trump than you need to. I don't think in order to persuade in order to persuade certainly those of us here in the studio and indeed Corey sitting there in, in Oslo on her fishing boat in order to persuade us that we should vote for Hillary Clinton, not Donald Trump. I don't think you have to convince us that Trump is the worst, most awful presidential candidate in, in history. I think all you have to do is convince us that he's a pretty horrible guy and that he would do very bad things to the country. And, and you can stop there. And we're, we're with you. We're good. I agree. I'm not going to vote for that guy. I agree with that. But the column I wrote actually wasn't trying to be a rhetorical <laughs> device. It was trying to be factual, and I actually believe he is the worst candidate. And I believe that if that's the case, we need to get some historians well, in here so to you, slug it out. With well, you. you mentioned George Wallace, though, in your in you your did piece. mention George Wallace, yes, yeah, but okay. he wasn't That's a major pretty... party candidate, right? Oh, Fair well, wait a minute now, hmm. okay, because right, well, there have right, been right. a lot of lunatics who've run for office, you know. Uh -huh, and, I mean, Hillary uh -huh. Clinton's the first major party female candidate. I mean, yeah. so we make some distinctions here. Um, Corey, do you have anybody else to add to this list before we move on? Because <laughs> I'm sure. You would like to can you know, we count throw bad in... people who held office in other countries? Can we count like Attila the Hun? Can we can we throw in other other? Well, we could compare major Trump historical to, figures. I mean, a lot we... of people you know compare Trump to some, some bad fascist right. leaders. How do we feel about that, Ed? I th I think the most obvious comparison is Silvio Berlusconi. Um, I do think the he's got uh, the hair. The hair is like, once again we're back to the hair. We're back to the hair. And there's the a record. kind of bunga bunga quality yeah. that yes. connects the two of them. Yeah, record with women, the sort of dubious business empire, the fact he had zero experience, and the fact that he wrecked his country on and off over a period of twenty years. So I mean, it, it, you know, Berlusconi is the most contemporary example. Thank you, Ed, for saving us from my extended sermon on bad American presidents. <laughs> 
19th century. I was looking forward to it. No, I was looking forward to your Samuel Tilden. I, I, I do think, though, I mean, so David, you asked, are we allowed, what do we think about comparing Trump to uh, major fascist figures in, do, in uh, European history? Are we history? afraid of saying Are we Hitler? afraid of saying And I, and I th- so I'm going to make an argument for yes. not being afraid of doing, doing just exactly that. I think that that the standard response when anybody says, oh, this is fascist or this is like Hitler or whatever, is, is that we, we invoke various faux rules and we, we start saying, oh, well, that's just rhetorically not fair. But, you know, sometimes things are kind of like Hitler and we shouldn't be afraid to say that when it is true. I mean, I, we absolutely should not overuse the analogy. But but I think that the, the, the fundamental point that people are, when they're using the analogy appropriately, trying to make is that the whole point of invoking Hitler is that Hitler didn't seem that scary, you know, back in 1931. He didn't even seem that scary in 1932, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And that, if, that, that, that fascism doesn't just pop up overnight. It starts slow. It builds. And if you don't focus on the sort of the early signs and signals, you miss it. And by the time you all notice, you go, oh, shit, it's, it's too late to dial it back. And I think that's, that, that is the value of those analogies. And I don't think it is inappropriate or wrong to say, you know, some of what's going on looks a lot like fascism. Not all of it. Not all of it. That doesn't mean that every single person who supports Donald Trump is an evil fascist person. You know, there are decent people who are confused. There are decent people who haven't really thought about it enough yet, et cetera, et cetera, as well as some jerky fascist people supporting Donald Trump. But, but, but saying, it, saying it and explaining why I think is important. By the way, this is why people tune into this podcast, because they really want to get the kind of Washington analysis that lives up to our local penchant for having it both ways. And here we have Rosa Brooks, who has said Trump may not be the worst candidate for president in American history, but he is like Hitler. <laughs> well, I think, we've, I think we've had a surprisingly large number of candidates throughout American history who were somewhat like Hitler. That's, it's, not, it's not that I have to have it both ways. I think, I think American history is even bleaker maybe than Corey does. Ed, you go out uh, unusual for Washington pundit types. You actually leave Washington and go to speak to normal Americans. What? At, at, yes. No, he goes out in the countryside. He talks. Well, what do you do that for, Ed? I've, I've been in deepest, uh, darkest Appalachia, uh, the place called Talking of American Presidents. Where they the still middle, speak with English accents? Where, no, well, one uh, of them uh, said, Elizabeth one Elizabeth of them Beaton. said, here comes the Duke of York when I walked into a store. So, <laughs> uh, uh-oh, my cover's been blown. But I was in this place, Buchanan County, clearly named after a mid-19th century president. The which, last Secretary of State to actually become president of the United oh, States. That's, I think Corey that's told us that in our last podcast. Oh, is Corey, that right? Corey, okay. Corey actually is contractually this. obligated to bring up James Buchanan in every part. But in, that, in those parts, it's pronounced Buchanan. And Buchanan, if you say Buchanan, 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 that's it. You know, you'll be, you'll be sort of squirreled away into a pickup truck and never heard of again. And uh, 70% of that county voted for Trump, the highest of any county in America, which oh is why I went there, ostensibly because he turned the to them on coal. But what the sort of takeaway I got from what, four days in this place is that uh, the reliance of Buchanan County and surrounding parts of Appalachia on entitlements, whether it's Social Security disability, whether it's Medicaid, whether it's food stamps, that's the economy now. And Trump knows his market. He's the sole Republican in living memory, let alone in this year's field, to say, I will protect, essentially, big government for white people. He knows his market, and he's catering to it. And I think that, way beyond, over and above coal, 
is the part of the elixir of his of his Appalachian success. Corey, you've been silent there. Are you eating herring? What is going on? No, I I agree with Ed's judgment. I think that as you look at who's actually voting for Trump, that it looks the profile looks to be people who feel like, you know, the country's changing fast in ways they're not comfortable with, but they're not people who are adapting well to the changes. And this generational theft of sustaining the social welfare system, um, you know, it works well for Trump because he's not going to have a lot of young voters. He's going to have disaffected 50-year-olds who the system is supporting. And Peter Thiel, the founder of PayPal, Mm -hmm. who's a delegate for Trump from California. Mm -hmm. Go to dive deeper a little bit into that. What do you think of that? I think Peter Thiel is sui generis. Like it's, if you watch the show Silicon Valley, the weird genius investor who figures out what the price of sesame seeds in Indonesia will mean for totally unrelated things. Um, That's a character of Peter Thiel. I don't think, I think Silicon Valley uh, is by and large, by a very wide margin, democratic and establishment democratic. But does this dispel the notion, Rosa, that to vote for Donald Trump, you have to be stupid? Oh, I don't think you have to be stupid to vote for Donald Trump. I think you just have to be you have to be angry and you have to either be ignorant or have not thought about things very hard. And none of the neither none of those things are the same as being stupid. You know, that that I think and I'm I'm sorry to say I have a handful of, of relations who are Trump supporters. Um you know, and, and individually, you can sit down with them and say, well, wait a minute. And they kind of go, oh, yeah, Are never thought of that. No, no <laughs> not, not my children. Not my mother, not my children. My mother's a Bernie supporter. Um, but that's another story. No, I don't, I don't think it's I don't think they're stupid. I think I think I think it is a big nihilistic fuck you. And, and I think that it, it's not a totally irrational in a sort of short-term way to want to want to do that big nihilistic fuck you to the rest of the country. I was I was thinking I was thinking about what Ed said, which is really interesting. I'm I'm trying to figure out if I if I agree or not because there's a, there's another fascinating paradox, which at least always been fascinating to me, which is that precisely the states and counties that are most heavily dependent on federal entitlements. Uh, tend to be the most heavily Republican ones, even though the Republican Party historically has been the party that wants to dial back those very same entitlements. And e.g., so we're talking about the the Deep South in particular um, and whites in the Deep South. And how do you explain that? I think part of the way you explain that is that, in fact, getting federal entitlements is not fun. It may keep you from starving, but it's not fun. You feel humiliated all the time. And if anyone who's ever dealt with federal bureaucracy in any way knows that it's extremely humiliating to have to deal with it and it's obnoxious and disrespectful and you feel dehumanized. You know, so we've managed to set up a welfare system that rather than making its beneficiaries feel happy and grateful and feel like, great, my country is working and it's helping me when I need a hand, instead feel like they are being treated like dirt, which they are, um, and and simultaneously desperately need those handouts and absolutely want to bite the hand that feeds. And so I, I wonder if if that can be squared with the argument that now they're supporting Trump because he supports entitlements as opposed to now they're supporting Trump 
because he he speaks to the rage. He and as Corey said, he speaks to the feeling of dislocation of I don't recognize my country anymore. I don't recognize my town anymore. I can't, you know, the young men are all either on crystal meth or, or selling crystal meth or making crystal meth. The, the young women are all pregnant. Everybody is fat. Everybody's dropping out of school. There are no jobs. If I go to a bigger town, everybody speaks a foreign language and I don't understand things anymore. You know, that, that it's sort of speaking, whether it's speaking to to a specific policy preference or whether it's just speaking more broadly to that sense of anger and dislocation. Which I think is a message that we need to hear. Although, you know, I'll tell you something interesting about this. I think there are two factors that contribute to this rage, fusion, et cetera. I, I, I was having breakfast this morning with Tom Friedman, who understands ooh, this ooh, stuff. Ooh, I didn't, I've never had breakfast with Tom Friedman ever. You, you generally have dinner with him, right? Dude. No, no, no. I've, I've, Tom Friedman has never invited me for even a cup of coffee. <laughs> okay, well, the next breakfast, we'll yeah, invite you. Yeah, you tell Tom Friedman that I like waffles. <laughs> okay. Okay. I'll, I'll make sure I do. And thanks for keeping us on point. Uh, in any event, we were talking about just this. And I was saying there's sort of two kinds of changes that are going on. There's a, a fast change and a slow change. The slow change is demography. And if you look at the United States, 2014 was the first year where there was a cadre of Americans where minority Americans, African Americans, Latinos, and Asians – made up the majority for a cadre, and that was under fives. By 2020, that's going to be true for under 18. Mm -hmm. By 2044, the majority of Americans will be what we formerly thought of as minority Americans, Asian Americans, Latin Americans, and African Americans. And that slow change, particularly if you're a white male, is very disconcerting because it, it has changed the power structure of the country. We're a democracy. It changes the power structure of the country in a lot of important ways. Um, by the way, we are a patriot. By the way, David is a white male, just for our listeners who are unaware of that because they can't see him. Thank I do you. want to say this. And, and a former minority, right? Because right. you're not including Jewish Americans in that definition. I, former minority. Uh, whatever. <laughs> I mean, David is not okay. very minority. Right? We'll just okay. Okay. He's Look, very minority. Okay. Un minority. <laughs> okay. Thank you for let's keep it at our point here. But <laughs> but also the patriarchy is being displaced mm -hmm. and and women are gaining power. So they're seeing this slow demographic change, which happens elsewhere in the world as well. There's also a fast change, which is a technological change, which is enhancing productivity quickly, is outsourcing jobs to the past, not to some other country, is changing the way people make a living. And all of a sudden, you know, I was talking to him and I said it's like throwing a a cat into a washing machine. It's like, what the heck's going on here? Everything's turning around. It's upside down. I don't know what's going on. Rose is nodding like, yeah, I did that just yesterday with my cat. <laughs> That's what most cats was, should have done to them. I, I'm not a cat lover. So. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll get to that later. And that will be the only thing of this that produces negative mail. <laughs> I, but, I'm yeah. sorry. I wouldn't I'm, actually ever put a cat in a washing machine. Yeah, I just but, want to say that. Okay, yeah, go on, probably David. David, that is really right. And I think that is really smart. And I agree with everything you just said. Okay. But here's an interesting thing. Thank you very much. The, the, here's the interesting thing. Tom was is from Minnesota. He's from a suburb of Minnesota. He's been writing a book about his Minnesota roots. And one of the things that he said was, he asked, what is the percentage of the population in the Minneapolis area that's non-white? And the answer is almost three quarters, around three quarters, and, it, and including very large Somali population, very large uh, Hmong yeah. population, and so forth. Minnesota hasn't gone crazy. 
the politics. Minnesota elected Jesse Ventura governor. Well, no, no, but I I understand. But they haven't gone hard right. Right. Uh, But but all I'm saying is that these changes don't require you turn hard right. Right. No, that's true. So can I bring the British analogy back here? The least Trumpian part of Britain is London, which is by far the most multiracial. And I'm, I'm talking about white Londoners, or the least Trumpian, or the least Boris Johnson, Johnsonian, and the least, you know, um, anti-immigrant part of America are, are white New Yorkers. I mean, that I think it's areas where there are fewest immigrants that fear of immigration is greatest, and I think that's true, you know, across the West. I think that's an excellent point, and I think that you find not only, I mean, there's certain things that link the parts of the country that are responsive to the the Trump message. One of them is, as you say, it's the South. Another is that they're heavily dependent on the federal government that doesn't treat them very well. Another is that they're places where you see a lot of the dislocations, both from the slow change and the fast change that we're talking about. But another is that they're more homogeneous than the other places that we're talking about. And what that suggests is that as we go through this change between now and 2044, which is absolutely huge, profound change in the history of the United States. We're really reweaving the fabric of our society. As we go through the change between now and then, ultimately, we're going to end up in a place where everybody knows more people of a diverse nature. We'll realize that it benefits them to do it. We've done this before, and and we'll be in an okay place. Mm -hmm. The problem is between now and then and how these essentially enclaves of people who don't understand that this is in their interests fight off the future before they ultimately accept it's better. Now, I'm going to wrap up here, and I wanted to turn to you, Corey, because this is an excellent chance to turn back to the 19th century. Um, When the groups of immigrants that everybody hated were the people who are now in this white majority who are unhappy with the new groups of immigrants we've got. So we've been through this before, haven't we? Oh, absolutely. The draft riots in New York City during the Civil War of Irish immigrants who had fled a country in order not to participate in war and, you know, didn't care that much about slavery and weren't participating in it. So didn't the 1890s with the huge swath of Italian immigrants. And and after all, these people are terrorists, right? Sacco and Vanzetti. And... I think the point about displacement is really important. And I think one of the reasons it's hitting Republicans hard is because we have we have been advocates of free trade and globalization and that kind of positive change. And we dramatically underestimated the dislocation for people who not just because of trade, but also because of technological innovation, right? Truck drivers' jobs are going away and they're not coming back. And we did not do a good job of anticipating just how big that dislocation was going to be, how little confidence people would have about their ability to transition to new professions, and helping buffer that transition to something different. And so that's a big part of the rage that we're seeing. And it it does parallel the 1860s. It parallels the 1890s. Change is hard. Ed, we're about at the conclusion of this episode of the podcast. Concluding words. I share your um, profound desire, not just from the point of view of America and American democracy and 
its health as the world's leading country for Trump to be defeated. I also um, fervently hope for that on behalf of the world's non-Americans, that, that Trump is bad news at every level. And I, I, I cannot think of a good reason to, to quibble with that. Can you, Rosa? Uh, no, I, I would not quibble with that. Ed, I will not quibble. <laughs> we are having a rare moment of consensus here at the ER. So as soon as we sign off for this episode, we're going to all get into a big group hug and slowly turn in a circle, much Except like the Corey final on, on episode. Of, I'm glad I'm in Oslo. Oh, <laughs> well, too bad When you're for back, you. we can do some trust falls, Corey. Yeah, that'll be great. <laughs> we're going to book a collective... Waffle breakfast with Tom Friedman. Yeah, we're going to have the waffle breakfast over here. All right, folks, that was really good and really interesting, and we thank you for joining us, and we hope you'll join us again sometime soon for another exciting episode of The Best Broadcast in America, or Narrowcast, or or really, really (laughs) micro-nanocast here at the ER. Thank you very much. You have been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm David Rothkoff, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Maria Ori and Ann Kingston. For more information about FP and to subscribe to this and our Global Thinkers podcast, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get podcasts. Thank you very much for joining us.